Today we are concluding the series that we have been going through, uh, walking through the seven deadly sins. These sins are ones that the church has for centuries, even millennia, said um, are, are sort of the beginning of the downfall of humanity, that, that they will, if we allow them to fester in our lives, will lead us to death. They will dehumanize us. They will pull us away from the life that God has for us. We've taken a look already at pride, at envy, at sloth, at greed, at wrath. Last week we talked about gluttony. And today is maybe the one sin that a lot of people would immediately think of if you were to ask them what the seven deadly sins are. It would be the first one on their lips for a number of reasons, some, some good, some bad. And that is the deadly sin of lust. We are talking about lust. So, if you have kids in the room, just be warned, that's the topic. And so, you can do with that what you would like. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you a couple of seconds to figure that out for yourself. But we are talking about lust. We are talking about what scripture has to say about it. And... Um, and we'll talk about how Jesus cures us of not just lust, but of deadly, all these deadly sins. Because at their heart, all these deadly sins are idolatry. They're replacing something at the center of our lives. Uh, they're replacing Jesus at the center of our lives with something else. They're saying, Jesus isn't Lord. Something else is. Be it another God, be it ourselves. Many of the deadly sins are all about us and placing ourselves as our own lords. And that's certainly true today of lust. So what is lust, first off? Lust is really just intense longing. It's intense desire. It is the thing that we do when we hand ourselves over to the cravings of our flesh. When we say, I have a desire and I must fulfill the desire. I must live into it. I must, uh, I must live my life according to the desires of my heart, of, my, of, of, of what I want to do. At its core, that intense longing to do that is called lust. And most often, we think of it in terms of sex, in relation to sex. Because it's, uh, it's often used in our, in our minds and in how we talk about lust. Uh, lust is often understood to be this intense craving for sexual fulfillment that that someone gives themselves over to and so the the prime examples for our, our our culture would be pornography that pornography addiction is related to this intense craving for sexual fulfillment and it becomes an addiction because you give yourself over to it but maybe a, a bit more concrete too would be adultery adultery is connected to lust but lust is also applicable to other things. It's not just a sexual sin. You can lust for power and prestige. You can lust, you can want, you can, you can uh, have an intense longing for increasing amounts of power and authority. You can have a lust for money. You can just want more and more, and it's a little bit different than greed because of that intense longing for it but it can certainly be tied to greed with, uh, with money. And 
you can well less dollar for all sorts of things but why is it most explicitly connected to sex in our minds this is really interesting because if we talk about lust, I'm I'm betting everyone first thought, oh, we're we're talking about sex today. Number one, we live in an overly sexualized culture. That everything around us, in uh, in in media, TV, even print media, it's all about sexualization and 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 sexualizing each other. It's it's the thing that we are discipled into in the Western world. And so if we have a category that includes um, sexual things, oftentimes when we think about that category, we'll put the sexual things first because it's the thing that actually we're confronted with the most and we can see around us the most. We can see it in advertising, we can see it in movies and television and in, in all sorts of different media. So number one, we link, we link lust to sex explicitly because it's the it's the waters of the culture that we swim in that we that we that we live in but number two in scripture sexual sins carry a particularly harsh penalty because sexual sins are rebellion both against god as god as lord but also god as creator because god has designed humanity a certain way in his image male and female he created them scripture says and that creation was done with intention so that we would mirror the trinity we would mirror the life that god experiences as triune as a three-in-one deity sexual sins are really a rejection of that design. We've talked about it in past series. We'll probably talk about it again um, in a while. But sexual sins are a rejection of God's design, which means that it heightens the importance. And this is why scripture tends to treat sexual sins very, very harshly. If you've ever wondered that, that's likely why. It's because it's, it's this, um, it's a very profound rejection of God, not just of what God says this is how i want you to live but even what god says this is how i designed you this is how i designed you to flourish as human beings and so lust gets connected to sex because of those two main things so lust is this intense longing particularly sexual longing that we allow to direct and rule our lives just like the other deadly sins, lust involves replacing Jesus as Lord with something else. And in this case, it's our own desires. Our desires become our Lord's and we allow them to rule our hearts. Our passions become that, that, those, those intense passions that we feel for things and other people. They become the rulers of our lives. But what makes this sin deadly, as well as all the other deadly sins, is that it really hollows us out. Lust hollows humans out from the inside out. It just leaves us spiritually desolate and dysfunctional, really. It causes dysfunction in all of our relationships. It causes dysfunction in, in 
in marriage. It causes dysfunction in just how we, uh, how we relate to people walking down the street. It totally destroys relationships. And <clears throat> lust for sex will, will hollow out your, your capacity for intimacy with another human being. Not just a spouse, but actually with other human beings more generally. It's very serious in that sense. Your, a lust for power will hollow out your capacity for compassion. A lust for money will hollow out your capacity for generosity. And you could go on and on. Lust hollows us out. It stunts our growth towards Christ-likeness. If we want to be more like Jesus, and we consistently fall intentionally into this sin of lust, if we allow it to grow, it's actually going to stunt our growth. It's going to stop us from being who God designed and calls us and instructs us and whose spirit is drawing us to be. This is why scripture is clear. Flee from lust. Flee from it. Run from it as fast as you can so that you can pursue what God has for you, the life that God is offering to you in Jesus. So texts like this, 2 Timothy 2, chapter 22 Flee from all uh, evil desires of youth. And that word evil desires is sometimes translated that, sometimes translated lust, depending on your translation. The word carries these, uh, this range of meanings, but lust is right there in it. Flee from the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee from lust but it's not really about the fleeing. It's about what you do afterwards. It's, it's fleeing towards something, not just fleeing away from something. Sometimes we can think of sins in this way that we are fleeing from sins just to get away from the sins. But scripture has something so much better for us. Jesus has something so much better for us. Jesus says, no, no, no. I don't just want you to flee from sin. I want you to flee towards the kind of kingdom life that I am offering to you. I want you to flee from sin and run towards grace. I want you to flee from sin and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And do it alongside others who are of pure heart, because doing it with others will help you become a more Christ-like person over time. That's 2 Timothy 2, 22. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 says this, When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That is, he doesn't test anyone. He doesn't put us through these, these testings. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires, by their own lust, by their own passions. And they're enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Did you catch that? Lust leads to sin. Sin leads to death. And so if we allow lust to flourish in our life, it's going to lead directly to death, to destruction. And First John 2 Verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. 
for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, its lusts, pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There's a clear theme in all of these. God wants us to live, to pursue righteousness, to pursue right relationship, that is. Right relationship with, with God through Jesus, right relationship with ourselves, knowing who we are in Christ. That the identity that Jesus gives us, that, tra- that, that we're transformed into, and the sonship and daughtership that we're adopted into, into in, in Jesus, uh, as well as right relationship with other people in the church and then other people outside the church and all of God's creation. We are called to pursue righteousness, to pursue right relationships, as well as faith, love, and peace with a pure heart so that we can do the Lord's will in the world. Don't allow your 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 flesh and your eyes and pride to stop you from living the life that God has for you. Lust stops us from being able to live these ways. Being able to prioritize Jesus, being able to live a life of love and faith, of, of hope and peace, it stops it all. Instead, lust leads to sin, sin leads to death. John makes it really clear, it's not just the lust of the flesh that we need to worry about too. Sometimes we think, well, lust is just all about the actions that we do. It's about those physical actions. It's about adult, uh, 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 about things like like adultery. But John, as well as Jesus, point out, no, 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 no. You have to watch out for the lust of your eyes, as well. The sh- the initial shaping of your desires happens in your imagination the lust of your eyes. And so be careful how you imagine and what you're imagining and try to catch it right away. Jesus gets at this um, in a passage we'll look at in a second, but that's a clear indictment of something like pornography. Because pornography is all about engaging your imagination to draw you into uh, a, a fake experience. It's not real. It's not with a with another human being, and it doesn't treat them as image bearers of the living God. But it's also an indictment uh, against quick glances to to check someone out. It's against those those multitude of ways that we try to objectify one another, and for. For our culture, as well as Jesus's, primarily this teaching is directed at men, although I think it's also applicable to women, but Jesus makes it really clear in a passage we're going to take a look at that lust um, tends to entrap men in a particularly dangerous way. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up there. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a a very quick passage in the middle of the sermon that talks about lust. And it starts in verse 27 by saying this, You have heard it said. You have heard it said. It is becoming increasingly popular, I think, to say, based on 
uh, Jesus saying this, and he says it a, a number of times within the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I tell you that, oh, he is invalidating the law or the Torah. Because oftentimes there's a quote from the Old Testament that Jesus uses. You have heard this said, but I tell you. And I think that is, uh, uh, you know, the, the argument tends to go that Jesus is superseding the law, superseding the Torah. He's, he's uh, getting rid of it so we don't have to really pay attention to what's in the Old Testament. We just have to pay attention to the new thing that Jesus is doing. Jesus is beyond that old stuff. I don't think that's true, and I think it's a pretty radical misinterpretation, not just of what Jesus is saying, but who Jesus is. Jesus was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, that's a teacher, and all signs within the Gospels, and all signs just of what we know about the ancient world, point to Jesus, not just being a, a, a rabbi, but being a Pharisee, that is, a, a rabbi who was part of a particular tradition called the Pharisees, who would travel around, who communicated through parables, who um, had shared beliefs and um, had, a, had, had a really important mark of actually harshly critiquing one another. Pharisees were really brutal with one another in their theological dialogues because they were trying to argue one another into each other's positions. So you would have, uh, you would have all sorts of different arguments within the ancient world that, that actually Jesus speaks into in a number of places within the Gospels and, and comes down on quite hard. And this is one of these places that he's saying, you have heard it said and giving these commands, but it's not so that he can remove the commands and, and sort of free us from the shackles of the Old Testament. He's saying, I am, you have heard this said this way, but you did not understand the command as given, so I'm going to make it abundantly clear so that you are going to be forced towards transformation if you take this seriously. If you take following me seriously, Jesus says, you are going to be transformed and it's going to be, uh, uh, it's go you're going to be confronted within this Sermon on the Mount. So when he says, you have heard it said, oftentimes he's actually entering into interpretive debates, which is really interesting, but he's also not invalidating what has said instead he is clarifying meaning and so for this uh, this part of scripture you can actually go up to verse 17 this is where jesus really talks about this he says in verse 17 don't even begin to think that i have come to do away with the law and the prophets i haven't come to do away with them but to fulfill them but to bring them to completion but to um, show you and teach you what they actually meant and, and what, how you actually live them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. This is the Common English Bible. Wow. Until all of it becomes a reality. The Old Testament and the law was really trying to describe something about what God's, how God's people were supposed to live in relationship with God and the kind of um, ethical paradigm that they were to inhabit and to live out in their lives. And there's some of that that is uh, related to culture, that the, 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 how cultures interacted in the ancient world, but a lot of it was actually... Um, ethics that supersede culture. 
and that have direct applicability to today. I think we'll have to get back to Leviticus at some point. We started a series way back when. Uh, it's getting time to getting time to look back at it. Mm. <laughs> Jesus says, <laughs> "You have heard it said, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully and is already he has already committed adultery with her in his heart." Excuse me. I should say, I, should, I deleted a line. <laughs> you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard it said, and then he quotes one of the Ten Commandments. One of the best known laws in, in all of scripture. You have heard it said, you have heard it repeated over and over in synagogues, in, your, in, in religious meetings. You have heard it said since you were born, but I tell you, this is what it actually means. And he reorients the committing of adultery away from just the physical act to the condition of our hearts. And he does this with anger in a previous verse that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And he does it here. Goodbye, Bible. He, he fell down. Uh, he does it here with lust. And interestingly, right, anyone who looks, or uh, the, the actual, I think the better way of describing this would be leers, anyone who leers at a woman lustfully, at a woman lustfully. So he's actually just talking to the men and saying, hey men, you do this. You do this. And if you do it, you are already committing adultery. It's not actually just about the physical element the condition of your heart matters. Now, why would he just do only men? Because I think we would all agree this is cross-applicable no matter who you are. Well, in the ancient world, it was, generally speaking, culturally allowed for men to be adulterer, adulterers, but women to not. And so if you were a man, you could commit adultery... And, and receive almost no penalty. But if you were a woman committing adultery, you could face death. And so that, well, that's, that, that's a pretty extreme difference. And Jesus looks at that and says, no, 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 no. Like it's, that's, a, that's not right. But even more than that, it points to a condition of our hearts that isn't right. And if we want to have a right relationship with God, it begins in our hearts and works itself out from there. There's nothing that we can do to get right with God. It's all about what God has done for us. And then God transforms our hearts so that we can have right relationship with him. Jesus redefines adultery based on the conditions of our hearts. That is, adultery begins with our desires. It begins with our lusts. And in doing this, Jesus is really calling men in particular towards greater ethical faithfulness and covenantal faithfulness with their, with their wives. This is still applicable to women, to be sure, but in the ancient world, adulterous women could be put to death while men receive no penalty. And so Jesus focuses on the men. Catch, though, what Jesus is arguing. Sex doesn't begin with the physical touch of two human beings. Sex begins with your eyes. Sex begins 
with your eyes. And because of that, he gives a very extreme rhetorical instruction. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It is better for you, Jesus is saying, to mutilate your body so that you don't sin than to be sent to hell, than to be sent into eternal separation and judgment. Um, it's, it's, it's better for you to do everything that you can to run away from sin and to run towards righteousness. He's being rhetorical. I don't think he actually intends for us to go around to now take spoons and pop our eyes out and saw our hands off today. Like, that's not what he's talking about. But he's saying, do everything that you can to run away from these sins. If you know that you fall into these sins, if you know that you stumble, it's actually up to you to do everything that you can to ensure that you're not going to stumble again. It's up to you. You have a responsibility here. You have a choice whether you sin or not. And there's a, I think there's a difference between, um, there, there's, there's sort of a, I think, maybe layers of stumbling, that there's really serious stumbling into sin, that you're really engaged with it, and that you don't care it's a sin. That in the midst of it, you give yourself over to your lust, your pride, your envy, your greed, your gluttony, whatever it is. That's, I think, what he's getting at. That that stumbling where you just, in the heat of a moment, give yourself over to your sin. He's saying, don't, no, 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 run away from that. But there are other times, I think, where we stumble and are quickly able to, 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 to grab ourselves and to regain our footing. And that's where we want to be, where in our lives, if we stumble in sin, if we if we do something that is against uh, the teachings of Jesus, that, that does not glorify God, God would have us not feel like we're about to be punished, uh, but God wants us to be in a place where that stumble doesn't involve us falling to the ground, but maybe just stumbles forward, and we can catch our balance and then continue walking towards him in faith. But he says, you know, if you keep on falling on the ground, if your right eye causes you to stumble and constantly fall down and down, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to, that one part of your body to be thrown away than for your entire body to be thrown into hell. And the same with your right hand. This phrase hell is really interesting. <clears throat> because it doesn't, in, in, in Greek, it doesn't say hell. That's actually not a word that's used. It's Gehenna. And it's a reference to an actual place outside of Jerusalem, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, the, the, the Valley of Gehenna. It's, it's just a, a, an area outside of Jerusalem that has a terrible, terrible history. This is a place that kings of Israel worshipped other gods in, even to the point of sacrificing their own children to these other gods in worship. This is a place where bodies 
were thrown out and burned after Babylon invaded Israel, destroyed Jerusalem after two years, and brought God's people into exile. Their bodies were piled up and burned in the valley of Ben-Hinnom in Gehenna. And this is a place where bodies that were crucified, the criminals, their rotting bodies would be left out or burned or just not allowed to be given a proper burial is really was the point and it dishonored them in a sense in death because they had dishonored others in life this was a place you didn't want to walk through let's say you didn't want to be around and it had this negative connotation not just in its immediate in in its immediate context like there were bodies everywhere and it was disgusting it had a history of this stuff that actually developed into a history of seeing that place as a microcosm of the the judgment that would be to come from God. It became a symbol of God's coming judgment against sin and evil. That's somewhere you didn't want to be. And so Jesus is really making an overall point for this audience. Take this seriously. Because taking it not seriously will lead you to the place of death will lead you to Gehenna will lead you, he's saying, into the judgment of God don't just think of adultery, don't just think of of, of sexual sin as being something physical it actually starts with your eyes and it starts with your imagination and how you use those things and whether you are glorifying God with your imagination or you're being drawn away by your desires towards sin, and that sin is going to lead to death. And so for us today, what is the cure? What is the cure? What is the cure for our lust? What is the cure for all of these deadly sins? Well, first, if you struggle with lust today, the first place to, to start is to name it is to name it, is to say, this is something that I struggle with. The fact that we hide our lust is actually a sign that we know how destructive it is, particularly to our relationships with other people. We know it, and so we keep it hidden. Naming that we struggle with lust frees us to be able to then deal with it. It frees us to be able to shed the secrecy and confront the depths of our hearts face on and, and, and the, the, the hollowness and emptiness that lust is creating within us. But it's not just enough to name it, I think. We also then have to confess it. And this can be um, to, um, to Jesus, going to Jesus and confessing our sins. It's, it scripture talks about confessing our sins to others and and being uh, being wise in doing that um, having someone who you trust who you walk with consistently who will offer you as as god's instrument the uh, an assurance of his grace and forgiveness <clears throat> um, but that could be that could be a a, a pastor a priest um, someone who you trust will not weaponize your confession is really the the discernment 
But you can also just go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I struggle with this. I confess my sin and I want to change. I don't want to feel like this anymore. And scripture says Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and will purify us. Will purify us. That will that is, he will take away the stain of our sin and begin to make us whole. So if you struggle with lust, name it. Confess it, bring it to Jesus. A really helpful step if you struggle with lust, and really if you struggle with all these any of these deadly sins, is to find an accountability partner, someone who will covenant with you to walk with you um, in in overcoming these sins, who will remind you of Jesus' love for you, of his grace, of his mercy and compassion, who will remind you of who you are called to be as a, as a Jesus follower. And there's software, particularly for lust, things like Covenant Eyes that you can subscribe to that really helps with this type of accountability. But then above all else, I think, we need to be spending time with Jesus to overcome lust, to overcome all of these deadly sins. Because when we sp- spend time with Jesus, we receive his grace, we receive his mercy, we receive his compassion, and we uh, slowly but surely allow his desires to become our desires. So that instead of our desires being the rulers of our, of our lives, we actually allow Jesus' desires to rule our lives such that we can confess with our hearts and our lives that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then life becomes less about my fulfillment, about me fulfilling all of my desires, and becomes much, much more about how can I best live as a citizen of God's kingdom, pursuing uh, righteousness, justice, faith, love, and peace. And so that's what we can do today. If we struggle with any of these deadly sins, name it, confess it, find an accountability partner, and then spend time with Jesus to receive his grace. And the beautiful thing about that last step in particular is that Jesus wants to transform us by his spirit. He, his heart for us is tender and loving and wants to see us live in better conditions rather than the hollowed out living that these deadly sins cause us to, to experience. If we go to him, he will fill us with his love and his life, his joy, his peace, his patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all of those things together will allow us to experience life in God's kingdom beginning now and extending into eternity so that we can live the kind of ethical life that Jesus describes within the Sermon on the Mount. You know, in that, in that, uh, the second passage you read from the Sermon on the Mount, the verses, chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, Jesus says, you know, there's no hope for you unless you are as righteous as the most righteous religious people. That you have to, you have to reach the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But the good news is that we don't have to do that on our own in Jesus. He gives us his righteousness and he transforms us so that we can live as kingdom citizens 
And that is good news. We don't have to strive to do any of this. God gives us the grace and the power by his spirit to be able to confront our sin, to be able to flee away from it and flee instead towards righteousness, justice, and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if anyone listening is struggling with lust, I pray that you would give them the courage to name their struggles, to to say this is the condition of my heart and I don't want to live this way anymore. And Father, as they do that, I pray that you would embolden them then to approach the throne of grace to ask for your forgiveness, which you assure us will be given. And I pray that you would give them that assurance in their spirit, in their heart, in their minds. Assure all of us, Father, that we have been forgiven because you are faithful and just to do just that. And we ask, Father, that you would purify us by your spirit. And then, Father, I pray that by your purification, you would make us into more Jesus-like people. Help us to live lives that are less focused on how we can fulfill our desires and instead help us to live as people who seek to live according to your desires for this world. Help us to live as citizens of your kingdom, as your ambassadors in this world. And by the, by the transforming power of your grace and mercy and compassion in our lives, help us to be people who run away from our sins as fast as we can. All of these deadly sins help us to run away from our lust, help us to run away from our pride and our envy, help us to run away from our, our slothfulness and our greed and our wrath. And instead, Father, empower us, embolden us, and give us the grace to be able to run towards your kingdom instead and pursue righteousness, faith, justice, love, and peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.